0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for your patience. I hope this extra long episode is worth the wait. This week, we continue the story of opioids, picking up in the 1980s. Last week, we detailed the discovery of the drugs oxycodone, methadone, and fentanyl, which, while interesting, was really just the setup for our story today of how opioids were renormalized in medicine to disastrous consequences. Admittedly, this is a complex story that I'm trying to tell quite concisely, so bear with me, and hopefully I do it some justice. As we've talked about, throughout much of the 20th century, opioid drugs were seen by physicians in a very negative light. They were considered dangerous, and not to be prescribed except in dire circumstances, which I think is fair. On the flip side, the lack of easy alternatives to opioids for powerful pain relief meant that many patients with chronic pain suffered terribly. This general view by physicians of opioids as dangerous began to change in the late 1960s, with experiments at a hospice in England, where terminally ill patients were prescribed large amounts of painkillers in an effort to help them die peacefully, and where addiction was not a concern. From there, opioids saw a slow increase in use, spurred in part by new philosophies of pain management. In the 1980s, opioids were being prescribed more often to dying cancer patients who were in terrible pain, and the WHO even published a system for evaluating levels of pain and finding appropriate drugs for prescription. But opioids would not remain in use just for patients who were likely to die. Two pioneers in this space were Kathleen Foley and Russell Portnoy. To start, I want to be clear that this isn't a hit piece. I do not know what Foley or Portnoy's intentions were, but I'm inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I currently personally believe that they never intended to cause harm. Foley and Portnoy have done a lot of good research that is likely advanced medicine, and are both highly decorated. Foley has won the Medal of Honor from the American Cancer Society, and significant awards from the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the American Academy of Neurology. Portnoy actually received the Wilbert Fordyce Award from the American Pain Society, named of course for our hero in episode 15. Both have published hundreds of research articles, and I frankly doubt that their intentions were malicious, especially having read some interviews with them in the last few years. That said, there's no way around it, so I'll be blunt. They goofed really hard. Stronger language feels like it might be appropriate, but I try to keep this show clean, so I'll stop there. Foley and Portnoy came to believe that opioids should not be reserved exclusively for the terminally ill, but also for chronic pain like back or joint pain, and they pushed for it in their research and advocacy. Their hypothesis was that people who were suffering from chronic pain were resistant to addiction, although there was little research to back this claim up. A commonly cited source was a 1980 study that supposedly showed that less than 1% of patients treated with opioid drugs developed addictions. What this so-called study actually was, was a one-paragraph letter to the editor of a medical journal, sent by a medical researcher named Herschel Jick. He simply noted that among his 12,000 patients treated with opioids while they were hospitalized, only four were recorded as becoming addicted. And while that may sound like some evidence for lack of addiction, especially for non-clinicians, you have to remember that the hospital use of opioids is quite different from opioid usage outside the hospital. Opioid use on patients in hospitals is often controlled by physicians and nurses, patients are constantly being monitored, and in many cases, patients may not even be awake when being given these drugs. This is a different situation from prescribing patients opioid drugs for home use, which is what using them for the treatment of chronic pain would look like. Jick, the researcher who wrote that letter, later expressed amazement that his brief letter received so much traction and attention. Actually, though, later studies have... Pretty much agreed with Jick's findings, even outside of the hospital, and generally find that addiction rates are very low among those given opioids even to take home. But the problem is that making opioids widely available meant that large numbers of those susceptible to addiction were now exposed to the drugs. And opioids definitely became a lot more available. Around this time, a number of companies, especially the now famous Purdue Pharma, released new drugs that seemed perfect for this new segment of patients. In 1984, Purdue released the drug MS-Contin, which was a timed-release morphine pill that supposedly was less dangerous because it slowly released the morphine over time. This idea that slowly releasing the drugs could reduce its risks was to become central in the marketing of MS-Contin and its next generation, the now infamous OxyContin. OxyContin was like MS-Contin, a repackaging of an old drug, but this time using oxycodone instead of morphine but the reason you almost certainly have heard about OxyContin and maybe haven't heard of MS-Contin is that Purdue Pharma wanted it that way, and they were much, much more aggressive in marketing OxyContin, with estimates that they spent 6 to 12 times more money getting the word out about OxyContin than MS-Contin. They also pushed narratives that were, in my opinion, at best misleading, and at worst, grossly negligent. Two ideas were central to this marketing push, One was that the opioids had an undeserved rep, and the other was that these new, slow-releasing pills were safer. I think whether opioids were too stigmatized is a fair debate to have. Opioids undoubtedly have their uses, and especially when extra care is taken to screen for addiction risk factors, and to monitor usage, I think they could have helped a lot of patients, certainly more than they were being used for in the mid-20th century and earlier. But Purdue's second idea about timed release pills making a difference appears to be more or less completely unsupported. Despite having a vague statement on their drug labels stating that, quote, delayed absorption as provided by OxyContin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Note the careful wording here. No studies or clinical trials were done to actually demonstrate a benefit, but the FDA allowed this text to be put on the labels and while you can decide for yourself, I think it's misleading. Purdue's internal market research even suggested that they should do studies to determine whether these new slow-releasing drugs actually made a difference, but such studies were never undertaken. Per later interviews, a vice president of medical affairs and worldwide safety at Purdue testified that since the drug was already heavily regulated, they didn't feel that further studies were necessary. To me, this feels like just an excuse. Despite the lack of evidence, sales reps at Purdue were told to push OxyContin with these discussion points and to push hard. This took the form of massive amounts of salespeople, often in personal accounts that I've read, being young, attractive women, approaching doctors with free samples, gifts, and spouting lines about the improved safety and benefits of their new drug. Again, without any good scientific evidence. Purdue took out ads in medical journals, made websites about chronic pain, and gave out free gear like fishing hats, plush toys, and luggage tags, with OxyContin branding on it. All of this which I find to be kind of bizarre now knowing the damage the drug caused. They also created numerous ads, many of which you can view today on YouTube. I'll include at least one in the links so you can take a look for yourself. This one even refers to Jick's findings about less than 1% of people getting addicted when treated by doctors with the drug, which we've discussed as being not super relevant. I've also read numerous accounts of sales reps being very pushy, and sometimes doctors even getting mad at them. One physician in Tennessee sent a letter to Purdue Pharma telling them not to send their sales rep to him ever again, and I'd like to read to you some of the letter. Quote, I am advising you now that I do not ever wish to speak to her again. She told me that OxyContin was less likely to addict patients because of its formulation. I questioned her basis for making such claims, and she stated her company had instructed her to make such representations. I expressed my disagreement with her, but she continued to make these assertions. On March 30th, 2000, she again called upon me in an effort to promote OxyContin. I again expressed my disagreement with her claims, and the conversation escalated to a shouting match. There is a lot to unpack there, but in summary, yikes. I do not have the name of this physician, but I applaud their scientific integrity. And while the sales rep obviously carries some blame, it sounds to me like she was under a lot of pressure to sell with this specific strategy. And I also know that in 2001, most OxyContin sales reps made most of their money from commissions, meaning if you wanted to make money, you had to land sales. Unfortunately for many patients, not all doctors were as discerning as the ones who wrote this angry letter to Purdue. And to be fair to the doctors, many of them were primary care physicians, not pain specialists, and had very little time for evaluation and follow-up. It's not like many patients knew better either, and especially in the United States where a lot of advertising was aimed at patients, many patients demanded the drugs from their doctor. Believing these drugs to be safer, doctors often obliged, and while patients were supposed to be screened for risk of addiction, this was rarely done in practice. Purdue actually even went out of their way to specifically target high prescribers of opioids, building a database of physicians with the highest rates of opioid prescription and spending extra resources marketing to them. A story that we've heard before with past opioid drugs would unfortunately repeat itself here but this time we have a lot more details, numbers, and studies to really illuminate the horrors of an opioid abuse epidemic. Some pain sufferers certainly experienced pain from the drugs, but it was often temporary as they developed tolerances, and the unlucky among those would eventually suffer from full-blown addictions, seeking out the drugs from multiple doctors or even buying it illegally if it came down to it. When OxyContin was no longer available to the most desperate of addicts, some instead then turned to heroin, which became much cheaper in the 2000s on the black market, and then from there to fentanyl, which, as we discussed in last week's episode, was cheap, powerful, and fast-acting. Ideal traits for a surgical opioid, and also for an addict looking for a fix. More commonly in the 2010s and onward, fentanyl would be abused as well. All of this was a disaster, but despite this, the drug sold incredibly well. Clearly, the aggressive tactics worked. OxyContin had $48 million in sales in 1996, which grew to $1.1 billion in 2000, just four years later. The next year in 2001, Purdue Pharma spent $200 million on marketing for the drug just in that year. All of this makes me feel that they really could have afforded to actually run some studies on whether this time released drug really was safer. But of course, at that point, there was no reason to. By 2004, OxyContin was the leading drug of abuse in the United States. Almost 250,000 people died from 1999 to 2019 from opioid overdoses in the United States. In the years after OxyContin hit the market, prescription opioid deaths quadrupled, and in the following decades after, deaths due to heroin and fentanyl overdoses increased as well. And while correlation does not equal causation, there is a massive amount of data specifically linking OxyContin to these increased drug overdoses. For example, opioid prescription varied geographically in the United States, and regions where OxyContin became highly prescribed were the first to start seeing upticks in abuse addiction, and overdoses. Addiction treatment centers also tracked which drugs patients came in dependent on, and in the years after OxyContin's release, OxyContin became a more and more common problematic drug. All this death and destruction was not without consequences for Purdue. Since the 2000s, more and more awareness has taken hold, and opioids are beginning to be prescribed less, but much of the damage has already been done. Purdue Pharma would be bombarded by lawsuits for its role in the current wave of opioid abuse and addiction, which are actually still being hashed out to this day, in early 2022. While the company is facing what sounds like huge fines of billions of dollars, it currently appears that many of the leadership of Purdue Pharma, including the Sackler family who own much of the company, will be able to retain their vast fortunes. In recent trial proceedings, some of the Sacklers made appearances via videoconferencing, with some apologizing and some still defending their actions, claiming that their conduct was not illegal and that the damage was unintentional. I cannot read their minds and their hearts, but for me, I see that much of the harm caused by the current opioid crisis was preventable. Heavier regulation by the FDA, more diligent executives at pharma, physician outcry against the reckless use of opioids could all have made huge differences. Many mistakes were made, repeating the tragedy of opioid abuse that we've seen in humanity throughout all of history. And I hope sincerely that we can at least learn from these mistakes. And so, on that fairly depressing note, we will end this episode. While clearly on the pharmaceutical side, pain treatment has not been going great since the 1980s, there has been other work going on, which we'll talk about next week. As always, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, you for giving me a listen and news open for this music.